The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. ABSA CIB is the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running. Proudly bringing you The Money Show. It's ABSA is a registered FSP. Tonight on The Money Show, Raja Bedian at Pan-African Investments. He was a massive figure in the fight back against corporate compliance and malfeasance in uh, tune with the Guptas. He resigned a lucrative board position in protest, and I wonder how that's worked out for him. We'll talk to Iraj Abedian in a moment in response to the news today that SAP, the massive German-based technology company, is paying a settlement fine with the South African government uh, related to its role in corruption at a host of state-owned entities uh, during the Gupta era. And uh, we'll also talk to the National Prosecuting Authority this evening just to understand how this new dispute resolution mechanism, which has been used very effectively, it would seem here, is operating. We'll also catch up with Warren Ingram. We'll do small business this evening. And I'm sure that you struggle with this because I do. And it's all about how best to use social media to promote your services, your offering, your business. How do you do it effectively? It is an absolute viper's nest of uncertainty. So how do we do that this evening on The Money Show? Looking forward to sharing those insights with you tonight here between 6 and 8. The Money Show with Bruce Woodfield on 702. 702. Something to chat to with Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective, our market commentator this evening, that confirmation today, if you needed it, that the world remains a deeply uncertain place for all of the end of the year fanfare around a speedy return to quick rate cuts. It's not going to be that clear cut. Remember how we saw our inflation in South Africa notch up a few levels last year? Well, other economies are seeing that too, the latest of which is the United States. Not disastrous, but certainly a warning that the world remains far from stable and that the conflicts in the Middle East and in Europe with Russia and Ukraine certainly are continue to have an impact and the disruption to global trade going through the Red Sea also has an impact. Um, All of this stuff is interconnected. Inflation ticking up in the United States last month to 3.4%. There were also slightly fewer jobs created than expected. Well, on to the big story of the day and that decision by SAP. I said 2 billion. I beg your pardon. SAP to pay 4 billion rand, $220 million to Get out of jail free, I suppose. Well, not free, but certainly for a hefty bill to try and resolve the investigations into the schemes that were used by executives to pay bribes to government officials in South Africa. Also, it turns out in Indonesia, SAP, the publicly traded global software company based in Germany, uh, Iraj Abedian is the chief executive at Pan-Africa Investments and Research Services. This is one of the big fish, Iraj. It's taken a long time to get to this point. It is, is it a satisfactory outcome? Uh, first of all, a compliment of the season to you and, and to Bruce and to the listeners. Um, is it satisfactory? No. Is it a good step? Um, definitely. Uh, the first of what I believe is a three-step um, package has been um, achieved and has been announced, and that is admission of guilt. Um, as you would know, uh, uh, SAP, KPMG, 
uh, Hitachi, all of them, uh, and the whole list of them who are at the Zander Commission report, and they've been guilty in, in looting the country in daylight, in, in obviously in cahoot with, with politicians. So there, are, there need to be three steps. One is, what have you stolen? The, code, the so-called restitution, pay back what you have stolen. Secondly, you need to pay the collateral damage that that has, uh, that has imposed on the South African economy. That has cost us, is costing us as we speak. Um, and that is a much, much larger number. It is not what you've stolen, it's the, the, the damage to the economy. And thirdly, there should be a disclosure. Who were the recipients? What were their positions? Um, and, uh, and what measures are we going to, in that process, take to make sure that SAP doesn't do it again or KPMG doesn't do it again? To pay restitution is, um, I'll use an example, Bruce, uh, you break my house down to, to, to steal my laptop, and then when I catch you, you say, okay, here is your laptop. But the laptop is a fraction of the cost of, of breaking the house down. Uh, and, and that's absolutely yeah. I mean, the, the consequences and the impact that it's had on the national psyche, the impact that it's had on the functioning of government, the impact that it's had on people's trust in government, the impact that it's had on the way government works in South Africa. State capture did incalculable damage. I don't know if we can ever come to a number that is satisfactory to try and get adequate restitution there, Iraj. And, and you know, it's, it's a question of what is going to be satisfactory in order to sort of say to companies, never do this again because we have a process in South Africa, we have an alert media, we have a national prosecuting authority that is willing to go after you. So don't do it because it will make your life a living hell um, eventually <laughs> um, because we do know the yep. wheels grind slowly on this stuff. If nothing else, Siraj, this this does send a signal that um, perhaps it's not a worthwhile activity to be engaging in the sorts of corruption that we saw the Guptas and their acolytes getting up to in our country. Absolutely. And, and also more importantly, or as importantly, if nothing else, it has highlighted the need for, and this is what I have been campaigning and I still campaign for and, and many others that we need to have a national coordinated campaign, a national project, if you like, to bring all SAPs and KPNGs and Hitotis and a whole lot of them um, into a package of not restitution alone, but compensation, a, a fair and equitable compensation without which and not only the we will will be stuck in this damaged economy for another two, three generations. And therefore, uh, this highlights that it can be done, it should be done, and it should be number one priority of South African nation, irrespective of political orientation. I mean, you've been at the forefront of the criticism of the process. You've been at the forefront of taking action. You took personal action at personal cost. Uh, And if memory serves, it was at the time, of course, you were on the board of Munich Re. Munich Re, you demanded that they fire KPMG, also implicated in state capture. You said, fire KPMG as your auditors. Otherwise, I walk. Munich Re refused. You resigned and you did something that in many circles is regarded as unforgivable. You gave the reasons in public as to why you did it. And you said, I cannot in all conscience stay on this board when they are 
um, happily employing a company that has been implicated in state capture. And you then forego your director's fees and you step down. You took a, a, a principal decision on that front, which very few people ever do. And I wonder what the long-term consequences of that have been, Iraj, whether or not you feel that you've been passed over for other board seats, whether or not you've been sort of nudged a little bit to the sidelines of polite society in some respect. There's no question about it. I mean, and I knew. It's not as if I was ignorant or naive. I did it consciously, and I regarded that as the foremost responsibility with regard to the fiduciary and conscious responsibility of a non-executive director um, to safeguard and, and live the reality of, of good governance. And if that means uh, loss of money and loss of income and loss of opportunities on other boards, that's, that's what you have to pay for, <laughs> for living with yourself and your values. Um, I, I, yes, it has been costly, and, but I don't regret it. I'll do it again happily tomorrow. Uh, and that's how we need, to, in my view, res- uh, regard the respons- responsibilities of non-executive directors. Yeah, but very few people are prepared to do it. Some people will resign quietly. They'll notice that their board is going the wrong way. They'll notice that they're, they're not happy with the way in which the chair is running meetings. They're feeling a little uncomfortable, so they quietly resign. They just step aside quietly. They don't put their hands up and because it, it, it does come at a cost. I mean, we've seen whistleblowers around the world. The, the, the dear, lovely woman who blew the whistle on Health and Racket Club, for example, 30 years ago, lived destitute in the United Kingdom, fearful for her life for a, for a period of time. I mean, this stuff comes with real risk and real opportunity cost. Correct, uh, Bruce, but I, I did uh, try the quiet way. Uh, it, it wasn't a sort of uh, emotional outburst, <laughs> get out and leave. I, it, it took four months. Uh, if I recall, yeah. uh, engaging the chair, in, engaging the auditors, talking to KPMG, the partner who was dealing with, with Munich at the time. Um, so we were, I went through the due process of quiet and, and calm and, and composed engagement of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the governance structures. And when I realized that they're not going to, to budge or they were giving me flimsy justification for not doing it, then I was left with no option but to do what I think was the right thing to do. Dr. Iraj Abedian, thank you very much indeed. Iraj is Chief Executive at Pan-African Investments and Research Services. Would you be prepared to make the same sort of call in your organization? I think being a whistleblower, and Mandy Ween is an expert on this, she's written the book on whistleblowers, um, just how hard it is for whistleblowers to rebuild lives and careers afterwards. Iraj is fortunate in that he has a, his own successful business, but no doubt there would have been. Some people have gone, ooh, that obedient guy, a little bit too honest. Mm, uh, let's not do business with him. I mean, yeah, that's a real reality of the situation. On to advocate Omar Rabaji Rasitaba this evening, Deputy National Director of Public Prosecutions at the Asset Forfeiture Unit. You used in the SAP case and possibly in other cases too, Omar, something called the Corporate Alternative Dispute Resolution Process. Explain to us what that very, very big mouthful of words actually means. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me and to your listeners. Um, so, it's basically a non-trial resolution with a corporate. So, think about it. I think it, it sounds good when you say, oh, we'll charge SAP, the company with corruption. But 
SAP, it, 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 you need to go behind the alter ego to be able to say who were the wrongdoers because it's got to be people, right? So um, the UNODC, um, our FATF obligations, international obligations on fighting corruption and, and foreign bribery um, compels us to have a national resolution uh, mechanism that you can disgorge the money. Because if you go to court, how much is the, 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 the court going to find a company? So, so, so this is quite helpful in the sense that first you get back the actual money that might have been stolen, and then there's also what is called punitive reparation. So it's, it's, it's a policy uh, that you have to, to have in, in, in the country. Um, so we we started off in NPA thinking that we can do a fully fledged non-trial resolution policy with corporates, which means um, negotiating with them a settlement, but making sure they cooperate with us, cooperate with us so that they, they can hand us the information so that we can investigate and prosecute wrongdoers. But we ended up with um, a directive under... Um, our prosecution policy. Um, so we have engaged the law commission. We think in South Africa, and we got senior counsel's opinion to this effect. We think that in South Africa, it will be, be better to have um, a, a fully flexed legislation. So you start off with a policy. That's basically what it means. Okay, because it becomes, I suppose, the the burden of proof is then different. Um, the level of corporate defensiveness is then different. It becomes a more collaborative approach to reach a resolution in a speedier time frame than when a corporate is accused of criminal activity, digging in its heels, defending its brand, defending its presence, defending its market, defend, defend, defend. Very deep pockets, very expensive lawyers, and they can keep countries at bay for years, I'm sure. That's correct. I think you've summed it up very, very well. It's very co- collaborative. Um, um, they, they self-report. Uh, there's an obligation on them to self-report. So in the case of SAP, the company is um, listed in the New York Stock Exchange though it's based in uh, the head offices in Germany. Um, so um, the DOJ USA then has got the jurisdiction to investigate uh, in collaboration then with uh, the investigative agencies in our country. So what happens to the fine? I mean, the, this is a fine of 4 billion rand. It's an enormous amount of money. How how does it get distributed? Does it all go to the fiscus? Does it all go back to National Treasury? Does it all sort of go into a central honeypot? Or does it actually go to the organizations that were uh, impacted by, 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 uh, by the crimes that were committed? Okay, so 4 billion is um, shed uh, between South Africa and Indonesia because the same... Right. Uh, bribery of, you know, of, of government officials to get business happens there. So it's two two point two billion to South Africa and and the rest to Indonesia. Where does the money go? Uh, in this case, seven hundred and fifty million will go into the criminal asset recovery account. That's 
just the pure flame um, that which which is held in treasury. So it's a treasury account. Then the rest goes to the SOEs. The rest of the money goes to SOEs. So where there's a, an SOE or government department involved, the money goes back to the, the to the government department. Okay, so that gives us a, a picture of where it's going to go. What happens then to the individuals who clearly were involved in corrupt activities? The company has accepted liability and responsibility. It then pays over this money. But there were individuals within the organization who carried out uh, the crimes that were committed. Are, Are they absolved of prosecution? Do you pursue criminal prosecution against them? Um. So the company um, and and the DOJ USA and the Securities Exchange Commission are all going to share the evidence with with South Africa, and they are going to be investigated and prosecuted. All of the the the, the um, officials or the executives that were involved in SAP South Africa have all been dismissed. So they get dismissed by the company. And then um, yep. they get investigated and prosecuted by, by, by the National Prosecuting Authority. Now, there is sufficient evidence here to show that there was a case to answer. And in this case, SAP has admitted, put its hand up and said, yes, I mean, and four billions, a lot of guilt. Um, it therefore implies that there is a watertight case against individuals who carried out these crimes. The National Prosecuting Authority needs a state capture victory. Is this going to be something that you will pursue, that you will utilize possibly some of the revenue that comes from um, SAP to actually prosecute these crimes and get a a much-needed victory in the battle against state capture? Um, So there's definitely going to be continued investigations by the SIU, the investigative directorate, the NPA, the Hawks, who are all involved in investigating this case. So, so what is happening is that um, the USA DOJ has um, got what is we call a deferred prosecution um, agreement with uh, SAP. So, this case was had in court yesterday in the state of Virginia. And it, this case is going to lie open for three years. In this three years, there's got to be prosecution in South Africa. So, so what is going to happen is that additional evidence is going to be asked um, from all these uh, overseas agencies and the need to help South Africa prosecute. So a lot of additional evidence is still needed. My word, it's never easy. Thank you very much, Advocate Omar Rabaji Rasitaba, the Deputy National Director of Public Prosecutions with the Asset Forfeiture Unit. Some progress, but not a final result, which I think will leave a lot of people very disappointed. The Money Show. The Markets. To Graham Kerner with a Kerner perspective, and it was all going fine until the Americans decided that their inflation rate was going up rather than in the direction we've become used to, Mr. Kerner. Yeah, good evening, Bruce. Um, indeed, and you're seeing a fair sell-off, particularly amongst the smaller U.S. counters. So if you look as we speak, the Russell 2000s down 
uh, 1.5% and the S&P down 06 um, Europe down probably on average about a half a percent to 0.6 of a percent. Now we managed uh, uh, to eke out a gain, I think largely thanks to NASPAS and Process. If it wasn't for those two, my sense is the market would have been down slightly. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, a hotter print is exactly what the market didn't want to expect. Um, people are, are not penciling in, they're putting in with a, you know, with blue ink. Um, rate cuts quite soon in the US and elsewhere in, in the world. And this sort of tells us maybe we've got ourselves a little ahead of ourselves, quite frankly. <laughs> That's, uh, sorry, I said a sudden tickle in my throat. So fearful of I am of not having interest rates cut this year, Graham. Forgive me. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a case of, and it's the most frustrating thing. I mean, this is the the one market narrative that I've I've got really fed up of, of observing now, the whole world is sort of sitting on the sidelines and waiting for inflation to get to a level where America is keen to cut interest rates. They've indicated a keenness to do so. Central banks around the world desperately want to cut interest rates, but they're fearful of doing so because there is just that small risk, and maybe it's a big risk, you can tell me, but of cutting interest rates too soon and the consequences of that of course could be devastating for economies around the world yeah bruce i think it's also a case of we we must we, let, let's just look at the numbers the core the core cpi number in america the core inflation number came in at 3.9 consensus was for 3.8 not a big miss but it it's against the backdrop of a target for the fed of two percent so you know it's going the the wrong way and i think to your point um Everybody wants to see rates lower, but it's very difficult for central banks to do so while inflation remains stubbornly above their target range. And it's not just the Fed. I think the Bank of England, the ECB, everybody, you know, is finger on the trigger ready to, to cut interest rates. But they, they're going to be unable to do so if inflation remains stickly above that sort of 2% target range. So, yeah, I think that that's really, um, although the market, you say, has been sitting on the sidelines, I think a lot of people got very excited. And as I said, we put our, you know, got ahead of ourselves. We, um, the markets generally have discounted the fact that I think consensus is for about 1.4% rate cuts in the U.S. in 2024. This could could sort of slow that process down, and we may not get 1.4, maybe we get 0.9 or whatever the number is. So I think that's the problem here, that people have just baked in good news, and uh, this is telling us that maybe we were just a little bit ahead of ourselves, and that's, I think, the, the big risk for equity markets because it's the uncertainty of, of policy that, that I think is going to weigh on, on the markets, at least until we get uh, the Fed giving us some direction at the end of January. I mean, we we earned about 5 or 6% on the JSE last year. Uh, it wasn't great. And as far as the year has started this year, we're down 5%. Um, so kind of we wiped out last year's gains for what they were worth. And, and I suppose this is the game in town, isn't it? It's um, really mm. just just watching and waiting for a little bit of certainty. Yeah, Bruce, I think if if you look at the, the I think coming in this morning, the top 40 was down 4.8. So uh, for the year to date, uh, you know, there's only a handful of trading days. Um, and I think to your point, um, you know, that wipes out last year's gains almost. And I think in large part that was driven by weakness in, you know, heavyweights like NASPASS and Process and Anglo-American and to a lesser extent maybe uh, Richmond and a couple of the banks. Um, so I think it was quite concentrated in, in the bigger index plays. But, you know, that's that's the problem. You know, people look at these these um, 
big index indicators and they sort of say, well, we're not going anywhere. But I would argue if you look a, a level down, you look at things like Aspen and, and Standard Bank and some of the broader um, broader SA economy stocks, they actually haven't given back. They're, they're probably up quite nicely, both on a one-month view and a, a one-year view. So, But to your point, it, it's been a very choppy start, and I think that's in large part driven by the volatility in China and the volatility that we're seeing elsewhere in, in, in global markets. Graham Kerner, thank you. Graham Kerner with a Kerner perspective on a Thursday evening. That's half past six. Eyewitness News time. Here's Veronica Mahwadi. 7.02. Bruce is on The Money Show. Most certainly I'm on The Money Show and it's wonderful to be with you this evening. One bit I left out of the story of the National Prosecuting Authority and the approach it's taken to securing a payment out of SAP for its role or its staff's role in state capture. Uh, The National Prosecuting Authority, I think, quite graciously and accurately and quite rightly, um, finishes off its statement saying the NPA acknowledges the role of South Africa's excellent investigative journalism for their role in bringing the, and I've I've scribbled it so I can't read my own handwriting, but basically just bringing the issues to light. Um, And the National Prosecuting Authority, I think, paying tribute because the, the the, the breakthroughs in state capture would not have happened without the very real courage and fortitude and gutsiness and real intellectual rigor of a handful of remarkable journalists and their editors. Um, it's been absolutely pivotal in the battle against state capture. And I think we forget very, very quickly um, the roles of superheroes in battling um, the crimes that have been committed against us all uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, the U.S. securities regulator, but before I tell you that, I can tell you that ABSA CIB, which is one of the best research houses at the JC Spire Awards for the sixth year in a row, proudly brings you the money show. ABSA is a registered FSP. Now I can tell you that the U.S. securities regulators approved for the first time U.S.-listed exchange-traded funds to track Bitcoin. Now, the Financial Times describes this as a watershed for the world's largest cryptocurrency and the broader crypto industry. Carl Diachert is a consultant at the Blockchain Academy. Carl, how big a deal is this in real, everyday terms? We've certainly seen uh, Bitcoin rally 70% in anticipation of this over the last year. But how big a deal, how big a game changer is this really? Hi, Bruce. This is, this is major. I think, you know, today marks the day um, at which Bitcoin has really became mature. It is now institutionalized and it is, um, you know, grown beyond the, the, the baby that it was in the last decade or so. Um, and it's really now, uh, this we see this ETF approval as a stamp um, of approval by the SEC and that, that this is an asset that, uh, you know, to be that we need to be reckoned with. Um, we as investors, we usually like to have thought, you know, that we are early and front-running Wall Street and government and institutional investors and so on. But I think as of today, we can't say that we are early anymore. Um, as of today, you can't say you're early, but you've been around and you've been in this market for an awfully long time. And hopefully you bought a thousand Bitcoin at one dollar when they launched and have kept them all secretly stashed in a safe place ever since then. But but certainly there have been 11 applications which have been approved by the SEC. And understandably, they're going to be critics of 
ETFs uh, holding Bitcoin because there's a huge amount of skepticism about Bitcoin and the inability to give a tangible value to Bitcoin. It's it's driven, I I suppose, by sentiment and appetite and hype and excitement. And I, I suppose for the first time now, truly, we're going to be able to assess how much appetite there is in the mainstream for cryptocurrencies and particularly the most popular one, which is Bitcoin. Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin's value proposition has often been misunderstood for many years. And, you know, um, even some of these institutional investors who who are now um, part of this ETF uh, launch today, you know, had some very bad things to say about Bitcoin only three or four years ago. And, you know, today they are... Um, and, and during this time, you know, in the meantime, they've uh, come to realize what actually, what, what the underlying value is actually. And, you know, that's maybe a discussion for another day. But, um, you know, and, and they've seen the potential of this and there's clearly a huge, huge appetite. I mean, in the first hour of trading now, we've seen billions of dollars of inflow, um, into this, um, into these products in the U.S. already. So there's obviously been a huge appetite. This has been coming now for 10 years in which the, the Securities and Exchange Commission in, in, in the U.S. Have, have delayed and delayed and delayed. And now finally came to um, to approve it. Yes, of course, there are risks. You know, there, there are some bad actors, as with any any new technology. Um, there's definitely some, some money laundering and, uh, and other bad things happening there. But, um, you know, I think uh, that's not isolated to Bitcoin. There's lots of assets that's being used for these kind of things. Um, and, you know, there's definitely um, a huge, uh, 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 there's definitely some, some very good things about Bitcoin as well. And I think that's what the regulator now saw. How is this going to affect the volatility of Bitcoin? Because I'm looking at a graph of Bitcoin over the last six months uh, from about $20,000 in September. That's just yeah, six months ago to you know, what $36,000 today. Um, it's an astonishing rally in Bitcoin in anticipation of this moment. Now that this moment's arrived, how do you anticipate the market is going to trade around Bitcoin in particular? I think it's very difficult to forecast. Um, you know, I think that you know there's, there's lots of rumors about billions and billions of dollars sitting on the sideline waiting for the ETF to have been approved, so that you know they, these financial advisors and other institutional investors in, at Wall Street can get exposure. So hopefully, you know, that all of that is true. I, I, I truly hope so. And, you know, um, and the price would would, uh, would uh, I- increase. But, you know, Bitcoin's volatility is really a function of um, of this four-year violent cycle that we've been, that we've become used to. Uh, Bitcoin goes through, and, and this is now a bit technical, but, it, you know, there's, a, there's what's called the halvening. And that coincides with some violent cycles, uh, very, uh, you know, it, um, that goes up, Quite a lot, and then and then dumps quite a bit, and and these usually occur in, in four years, and we are approaching another one of those now in this year actually. So you know, so I do I don't really expect the volatility to decrease. Um, you know, I don't think that the ETF really has the ability to do that. So you know, but you know, um, Bitcoin investors, cryptocurrency investors have, have gotten used to to this to these cycles. And um, we actually like it, you know, we thrive on it, so it's, it, it, it makes life exciting.
<laughs> uh, most certainly is, and it's a big day. Carl Diacher, thank you very much indeed for chatting this evening. Carl is a consultant at the Blockchain Academy. Also joining us this evening is, no doubt, a very excited Christo De Witt, who is the country manager for South Africa at Luno, which is a foreign, which is a foreign currency, which is a cryptocurrency exchange platform. Can South Africans participate at this stage, Christo? How might they be able to participate in these American? listed ETFs. Thanks, Ruth. Yeah, so the American ETFs are currently only available to, to U.S. citizens um, through the issuers in the U.S. But altogether, as Carl mentioned, I think it's great news for the industry. It is a watershed moment. It, it brings, you know, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin into the mainstream. And it's something that, that us in the industry have been vying for for quite a while. Okay, but I mean, it, it, it is a game changer and possibly a precursor of more to come. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can also see that in, in some of the, the performance, not just in Bitcoin, following the announcement. We know there was a lot of anticipation in the run-up to this announcement. And we saw that, you know, the price movement, the graph going up uh, in anticipation. But what was interesting is also the response that we see in the the second biggest cryptocurrency by, by market cap, Ethereum, that also saw quite significant growth today um, in response to this news in anticipation that, you know, a possible Ethereum ETF could follow. Um, so overall for the industry, it's quite, it, it, it's a very positive movement. And I think what, what makes it even more exciting is, you know, um, this ETF application process, as Carl mentioned, has been 10 years in the making. You know, it's been applied for and rejected by the SEC in America over and over again. Having the stamp of approval brings it into the mainstream and gives everyday regular uh, investors an opportunity to invest in the asset without actually holding the asset. And that, I mean, we've seen the same happen with, with gold when the gold ETF uh, was launched. It's, it's a much larger scale of adoption, which I think is altogether very exciting um, uh, to witness. Cryptos, are, I, I use the term advisedly and I, I've always made that point, but cryptos are fairly easy to create and there are many thousands of these things as people have jumped on the bandwagon, some with greater integrity than others. Bitcoin itself is nearly a trillion dollar asset class, for want of a better word. I think it's sitting at about $900 billion. I wonder how the structure of ETFs is going to work in the future and how regulators are going to define what crypto can and can't be included in ETFs in the future. It feels a bit that we're entering into a bit of a minefield sort of territory. I think that's a, that's a fair point. I think one thing to, to consider, and I think where, where Bitcoin, um, you know, is, is the driver for this. Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency, you know, to be created. And, and you know, we, we almost see Bitcoin as the gold standard um, of digital currencies. What happens with the other cryptocurrencies and whether or not, you know, further ETFs will, will follow um, related to, to other cryptocurrencies, I think the market cap is one thing to look at. So even though there's, you know, already more than 20,000 cryptocurrencies in existence, you know, the, 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 the top 20 cryptocurrencies hold more than 90% of that market cap. So I think that's 
another um, uh, key factor to be considered by any regulator that wants to approve these ETFs. Another thing is also the, the utility, the adoption, and the underlying fundamentals of the cryptocurrencies that they are evaluating. And that's, those are all factors that are going to be considered. I think another point that we need to, to just mention is, even though this is a huge you know, uh, driver and, and a watershed moment for the industry that these ETFs have been approved in the US, which you know, is the largest capital market by far, um, Bitcoin ETS and Ethereum ETS have already been launched in other jurisdictions prior to this, but there's a lot of momentum or a lot of focus on the U.S. because it has such influence in the in the global uh, financial markets. Thank you, Christo, very much indeed. The country manager for Luno in South Africa. Bruce Whitfield on the Money Show, six to eight p.m. The world's worst container ports, most ineffective, is poised for takeover by an international businessman. Enrique Raison is uh, the guy behind international container terminal services and won a 25-year contract in July last year to operate it. Under that agreement, the company is paying an undisclosed amount of money for just under half of Durban Container uh, Terminal Pier 2 and will run and expand the facility, which accounts for, what, three quarters of the volumes that pass through the port and of course Durban itself handles nearly half of South Africa's total port traffic and is being seen as a solution to an underperforming port which has fallen further further down the global rankings. Understandably unions are concerned about what the consequences might be for their members. Anele Kitt is the Satawu Deputy General Secretary. Anele what is your your primary concern here? No, thank you very much for having me here. I think uh, the first point that we need to make as South African transport and, and allied workers, you know, is that um, at this point in time, we are unaware as to who is the is the is the contractor or the person who who has been given an opportunity to buy a portion of 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 this port. So we've been learning throughout um, a weekend or so that there's a particular name and we don't want to endorse a name that we are not consulted about. I think that is very important that I, I have to put that categorically clear. Mm. That as a union, we don't know who is the partner to Transnet. We are awaiting management of Transnet to disclose that to us. However, uh, responding to your question, uh, we've been clear since uh, this process has started that as a union, we have a problem if there are no guarantees uh, in terms of job losses. So our primary concern, it will always be about our members and members only. The sustainability of the business is our concern because, of course, if the business is sustainable, it, it will be able to make sure that jobs are there. But if those guarantees are not given on the table during consultation, we will forever be concerned as a union. 
Would you move to block the deal? I mean, this is a deal that, again, this isn't a, a Mickey Mouse company. The, the company International Container Terminal Services operates terminals across six continents, and it was one of six bidders for this particular contract. It appears to have won that contract, which still needs to go through a proper due diligence and still needs agreements with yourselves as labor to be finalized. Would you be... As deter- would you be? Are you determined enough to resist, for example, this acquisition if you don't get those guarantees? Would you say no? Actually, we we're not willing to uh, to support it. It's very strange that that information is known by you as Mickey, but we, as partners or shareholders within Transnet, we don't have that information. It's very much strange and it's puzzling because. The information that you have, we should be having as a union that is being taken serious within Transnet. It would be at ease because this public notion that we are against the progress of Transnet, it's not true. But you must remember that we represent people within Transnet. So it is within our duty to make sure that their interest uh, is served by the union that they have trusted as an, as an organization. I'm hearing information from your statement right now, information that was never shared uh, with us. That gives you now a picture of how I would treat it within this process mm. by Transnet. Uh, As you will understand we, our frustration we, we as a trade union. Yeah, I think we can agree, Anelia, that, I mean, the, the current port operating, the rankings of Durban Port are unacceptable, 341 out of 348, according to the World Bank Index of Container Port Performance. Things clearly need to improve. Um, they're not going to improve under Transnet. I think that much is clear. I mean, on that basis, would you be supportive of international investment or foreign, or foreign investment or even local investment into the ports? On the proviso would, that your members are protected, at least to some degree. I will reiterate my point. The basis of the formation of a trade union is to protect workers' rights. Subsequent to that is to make sure that in that process of protecting workers' rights, you must make sure the economy doesn't shrink. So, if proper consultation is done. Of course, Satao, as a, as a union that is very mindful of economic challenges that this country is having, will have no problem. But how do you go to your members and say, yes, we agree on something that you can't even explain? That's a problem that we are sitting with. That's a dilemma that we are sitting with as a trade union. We are sitting with a dilemma that we don't know what is happening, and we are we are okay. forced now, that's, to catch that's, the that's horse a fair, when it's That's a fair enough. Anele, we must leave it there. I thank you very much. I think it's a fair enough point to end on in terms of this transparency in the discussion. Certainly, this is a deal that was that was inked in the middle of last year. Anele is complaining that they're not getting the clarity they need, and if Transit wants, if government wants this deal to go through, they're going to have to talk to the trade unions. The trade unions also are going to have to have a good listen to what the future of the ports hold. And I don't imagine that any person who acquires a South African port is going to be able to give the guarantee that the unions feel they require.
So it's going to be an interesting way to see how this one plays out. SAA put up for sale. I was still writing my book two years ago. <laughs> the Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. City of Cape Town's made no secret of its desire to divorce itself of dependency from ESCOM. It's, uh, I remember Jordan Hill Lewis, the mayor of the city of Cape Town, talking about this two or three years ago. There now seems to be a very firm and tangible plan in place. The idea being that the city of Cape Town has issued a series of tenders to try and reduce its reliance on ESCOM. Not completely get away from ESCOM, however. Uh, Beverly von Rienen is the mayoral committee member for energy. Is there absolute clarity here, Beverly? Is this a desire to get away from ESCOM completely or is this simply a risk mitigation exercise to try and alleviate the very worst effects of ESCOM dependency? Yes, good evening to you and thank you for the opportunity. I think that is the absolutely correct statement to make that we as a city would really like to be less reliant on ESCOM. And um, of course, I mean, we would like to protect our customers from those four stages, the first four stages of load shedding. So that is the intention um, and it is a priority for the city of Cape Town. Uh, I'm sorry, the line is not 100% clear, but I mean, I get a sense from you that this is trying to avoid the first four series uh, stages of load shedding, the most common stages. Yes, we've gone to stage six a number of times in the last couple of years. And, um, you know, we we seek to avoid that at at all cost, I suppose, because it's it's devastating to every aspect of our lives. This is also not an overnight fix, as far as I understand it, Beverly, in terms of the amount of work that has to be done. The tenders go in by the end of April and then... There's an enormous process that looks like it's going to take several years to bring to fruition. That's correct, yes. Um, so the tender, um, obviously, you know, uh, will close on 8 April. So the tender is out currently. And, um, you know, with all of this and the budget that we set aside, I mean, that will be over a period of five years. But we are hoping with all of the short-term um, programs that we are hoping to implement, of course, I mean, um, we are hoping that there will be some success. Um, and also, again, um, you know, in terms of our plans, um, we really would like to protect our customers against, like I said, the first four stages of ESCOM, um, slow shedding by 2026. So, I mean, that's like literally two yeah. years away. And so, of course, I mean, yeah, we, think, thing, we think of it, yeah, we think of it as an awfully long time away, Beverly, but if we'd yeah. only we got on this bandwagon sooner, we would be through the worst of it. How much pressure is being taken off the grid in Cape Town by individuals who can afford alternatives, whether it be inverters, whether it be the solar and inverter systems? Uh, how much sort of progress has there been made on that particular front? You know, I mean, when it comes to um, commercial customers, I and mean, it's, it's really very different, when it comes to residential, I mean, it's really just a drop in the ocean. Um, so what what we are hoping to achieve is um, it's to bring online, you know, and, and it's for that reason that we're putting out the spender because we'd like to add um, an additional 650 megawatt of independent power to yeah. our mix 
And this, of course, I mean, will be over the next five years. And then building up the ultimate goal would be, um, you know, goal of access to additional independent power to put an absolute end to the ESCOM load shedding. And that's how we will protect our customers in Cape Town. Um, so, of course, Beverly, I mean, this thank, is... The, Beverly, thank you. Beverly Thank you, is a mayoral committee member uh, for energy this evening. And yeah, I mean, again, it, it's you, you govern cities effectively. You have more leeway and leverage to effect a positive outcome for your rapier. I think that that is a positive outcome. And uh, yes, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of action. Of course, it takes a, lot, a huge amount of work. Pacific Cape Town, as far as I can tell, I mean, there have been some small municipalities have been into not doing what they've been doing for years. There was that town in the Free State was told by ESCOM it was causing havoc. But yeah, um, we, we watch this space very, very closely because um, there are models that are being developed all the time to just make things better for South Africans generally. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. When it comes to running your small business how effective are you in using digital marketing have you tried digital marketing digital marketing is a wide school of thought it is a very difficult place to go and i'm hoping that belinda Martin can give us some absolutes when it comes to digital marketing as to what does work because we've challenged her this evening to to tell us how to tell how to get digital marketing to actually work in growing our businesses and i've thrown lots of money i hate to even begin to add it up linda at digital marketing initiatives and digital agencies and people to try to grow and i've not been overwhelmed i think i'm being polite about this i've, I've been distinctly disappointed with the results please tell us how we should have been doing it properly <laughs> wow, that's that's quite a brief, Bruce. Um, and thank you for having me. Um, okay, in terms of digital marketing, as you say, such there's such a wide scope. But I think people can often get confused by all the shiny tools out there. You know, there's so many sexy tools to try, and we start by just going out there and trying everything that's fancy and new instead of starting right at the beginning with the fundamentals. And that's why our book begins, you know, not with necessarily things that are digital but with the marketing fundamentals um there's actually a marketing principle by marketing expert ed mayer he's was from the 1960s but it's still relevant today and it's called the 40 40 20 principle and the whole idea is that 40 percent of the success of your marketing campaign depends on reaching the right audience and then the other 40 percent depends on how well that messaging is received and then the final 20% is on presentation, you know, design and copy. Um, and, you know, I think that points to the real important part in terms of digital marketing is that you've got to start by reaching the right audience, the right target market and defining your USPs. And that's how our book kicks off is with chapter one is the target market and defining that and then um, figuring out what your USPs are, which is your unique selling proposition. Mm. What makes you stand out in a crowded marketplace? Um, and I think a lot of people, they don't really know, they don't define that to start. And so they go out with quite confusing and maybe ineffective marketing. Is it time to drop the label of digital marketing altogether? It's just marketing, isn't it? It's just a new channel to deliver a message to potential customers. 
I, I would agree because our worlds are digital. Um, but I suppose when <laughs> when you're pitching and packaging a book, it helps to be very specific. No, of course. No, no, and no. I, but it's not just I, about your book. It's it's about an entire industry that says, oh, no, this I, is different I from agree. everything else. This I is know. special. This is twinkly. This is shiny. This is interactive. You could put a video on it. Look over here. Oh, look, shiny pictures. And oh, and here, you know, and here's a bill. Um, you can tell that I'm a little feeling a little bruised and battered. Someone's um, a bit cynical today, but I uh, know it's understandable. It's understandable. <laughs> I get that. Um, and I would agree that, you know, marketing is is probably the correct term to use. We don't have to define digital versus non-digital. Our words, our worlds are digital. And, you know, South African South Africans are all online. Um, but I think there is a a huge market or business owning market that is still confused by a lot of the digital tools and how they can fully leverage them you know to reach their target audience and sell more of what they do um, and so we wanted to demystify things with this book which is what i hope i hope it's done is to you know it's not as confusing and complex as it may sound if you're not in the industry um you just okay, and you so help, I think help, help us understand do, yeah. Yes. Help us understand some key principles on how to use this channel, this particular method. We, you know, I think you know, anybody who's ever done any marketing knows how to you know, spend money on TV, knows how to spend money on magazines and newspapers, those that are left and those that are worth putting anything into. Um, and uh, they, they're kind of flummoxed by the huge array of infinite possibilities that digital does bring. It is a fundamentally different approach to using the same principles of marketing. So how do we do it best? You know, it's it's obviously, it's a it's a book question, but I would say you need to figure out where your audience is spending time, you know, and I think, as you say, people get, they, they think they need a Facebook page and an Instagram page and a LinkedIn page and, and they think they need everything, but, but they don't. So, you know, you need to figure out where your audience is spending time when also where they're responsive to your messaging. You know, I think we get so overwhelmed by all the messaging out there. People might be on Facebook, for example, you know, and they might be more open to receiving your marketing message there than they would be on Instagram where they are for purely leisure. And I think that that is about knowing your audience and their behavior. And that's not always easy, but a lot of it comes down to research and communicating with your audience. Um, and I think that's that's the key is you've got to connect with them um, on a personal level, specific, specifically if you're a business owner, it's a small business. You need to be out there in the marketplace. Otherwise, you're just shooting in the dark. You know, you've got to be there trying to connect with your audience. And I think that's that's what I'd say to start with is that marketing is just communication. And that requires connection and an understanding of of the fears and hopes and and yeah desires of your target audience. It's really difficult, isn't it, knowing where your audience is? Because, I mean, Facebook is a place of great communication and still you know, a, a very dominant part of the way in which people communicate. Yes, and Instagram is a place of leisure, but, leisure, but there are a huge number of products that have been marketed. I, I even bought something via Instagram recently, believe it or not. I went, oh, that looks oh, good. And it? I bought it. Uh, oh, I couldn't possibly tell you. I don't tell personal stories. <laughs> um, it, it was warm socks for a relative in the United Kingdom and um, oh, well, it was a, a particularly a compelling uh, exactly and it was just it, it's the thing that hits a chord you get you, know, you get a complaint 
My feet are cold. It's miserable. <laughs> and you just go, oh, well, shut up. Have some have some socks. Um, and, you know, pay dispatch and the stuff arrives in a couple of days and yeah, the, the systems are really good. So it it is possible that you do reach an audience. But that is in a, a, a very much a leisure and lifestyle space. It does depend on mm. who you are and what you do and the market that you are trying to reach. And warm, woolly socks for a Northern Hemisphere audience, I suppose, work at this time of the year for that space. Yes, no, and I fully agree. But I suppose the great thing about digital is marketing is that you can test and refine and change if it's not working. And so that's, you know, there's just much less commitment. So say you do your adverts um, on Facebook for your for your product, and it's not working, well, then you can reduce the budget and take it somewhere else and test it, you know, and you can refine your How messaging and see a testing. Well, it is, it is time intensive, but you know, you want to make your business work. You need to devote time to this or employ someone who, who no, can no, no. devote their so time. How much time do you, how much, I mean, again, because again, I've heard these conversations before. Oh no, you need to give it time. How long? How long oh, to be, know whether a campaign is actually landing or not? How do you know which parts of it are working, which parts aren't? I mean, digital was meant to be this great panacea of all the uncertainty. What was it? I think it was Ogilvy or one of those people who said uh, 50% of advertising doesn't work. We just don't know which 50%. And I'm not convinced in a data-rich environment we figured that out yet. Well, and I agree. And that's why there's analysts making loads of money, um, you know, <laughs> helping companies, helping big companies figure this out. Yeah. Um, and obviously it depends on the, the sales and marketing cycle of the product. You know, if you're looking at a, at a B2B, you know, a much longer sales cycle, then yes, there's obviously it's a lot more expensive to test and then refine. Um, again, that's, it is about the, the how long is a piece of string thing. I think a lot of it, I know this is might sound a bit off, off the wall, but I think a lot of good marketers have strong intuition as well. And so is it strange to say that you need to kind of feel how, how long you need to test for no. and, and see how people are responding? Um, and I think that's a really strong um, part of a strong marketer and it's often underlooked and not spoken about. Yeah, I, I agree. Is it necessary to spend money online to reach customers or can you do it organically? No, and I, I suppose that's the great thing is that it's not necessary to spend money online. You know, if you look at the world of, um, you know, I was an influencer at one stage and um, I'm not saying I was a particularly powerful one, <laughs> but, you know, there's the whole idea of say you produce a beautiful, I don't know, baby clothes, you know, and you don't have any money to spend on marketing them. Well, then sending, you know, picking five parenting bloggers who have really high followers and and sending them a personalized note and a, and a baby grow for their child um, can be a really powerful way of connecting with an influential audience um, and then increasing your sales. And, you know, I saw that work in a personal capacity and it, it can work um, depending depending on your target market and your yeah, your offering. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, what I love about this digital world is that the rules of marketing haven't changed. The, the common sense aspects of connecting with customers, the common sense aspects of getting your product in front of people, the common sense aspect of actually allowing people to touch and feel what it is that you're offering them, whether it is a service or a physical product, those rules have not changed. Those rules are as fundamental today as they were when Gutenberg invented the printing press. Exactly. And is that because humans haven't changed? You know, I, I do think about that quite a lot. I um, we like yeah. to think 
we have advanced in so many ways. But I would say that we're, we're still inherently um, the same. Uh, and that's why a lot of our book um, has what we hope is evergreen content like that, you know, that's been in place since, since the, you know, the time of Mad Men um, and before. Um, and because while the statistics change and the tools, you know, you know, Instagram was big a few years ago, and then it was TikTok, the fundamentals remain the same. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. So not all platforms are created equal. Understand where your customer is likely to be. Understand mm -hmm. when it is that they're going to be more likely to be paying attention to the sort of marketing you're putting out there, whether that is content, whether it's thought leadership content, whether it's an advertising post, whether it is an outward punt. Um, and mm -hmm. then keep going at it, I suppose. I played an, an extract from an interview I did last year with a marvelous entrepreneur called Sam Skyring, and she described to me how she went about building a community for years on LinkedIn until she had 5,000 valuable connections of people within uh, consumer goods businesses, particularly in the United States, because that's the market she wanted to go. And she ended up cultivating and creating. And when she had what she believed was critical mass, she started sending messages out and really connecting yes. with those people and making it deeply personal. But my goodness me, she's got the patience of, a, I, I don't know, a saint. Yeah, um, to go and that, that because yeah. A certain level of, um, yeah, as you said, patience, but I mean, you've got to have obsession bringing in money in another, in another stream, right? So if you're yeah. doing that on the side, that's great. But yes, you need to have an income stream elsewhere. I think one of the frustrations is we believe digital is instant. We believe that because everybody's online, everybody's going to see our message and then everybody's going to respond to our message. And unfortunately, <laughs> exactly. it like Well, exactly. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think the key is, as you were describing that, I was thinking, you know, so that when you described, she obviously was providing something that was intrinsically helpful and valuable to people. And I think that's, you know, the, as we said, that hasn't changed. So your messaging is not just your digital marketing. It can't just be about you. And I think that's a lot of mistakes that companies make. Turn it into the customer. What are they needing or wanting? How can you improve their life? And all marketing messaging, if you can flip it on its head like that, and we, we did that a lot over the years with clients, that's the key to it that you know defining exactly what they're looking for and how you can help them and once you've got that then i think that's like the secret i really do i think one agent i mean if there is an agency that's getting this stuff right and i'm going to get in trouble with other agencies all agencies are like this. um mike <laughs> sharman at retroviral <laughs> mike sharman yes. at retroviral um is doing amazing yes. things out of being a hooligan and um, really creating ca captivating content that is and – and he was speaking at a conference, I think, today he was saying just about getting earned media. And I'm guilty of giving him free plugs for his work because I think he's very good at it. And I think he's, he's an outlier example of somebody who's getting this digital world very effectively. Yes, and, and you know, because his work, it, it's creating something that's that's funny or, or that's, you know, that that's – that's making you Connected. feel emotional or yeah. giving you something like it's not just taking it's really providing something of value like i said and, and he does that brilliantly i would agree yeah and so, and so it's a case of like really understanding who you are 
what your product is, mm. how it's going to resonate with the audience, making it accessible to the audience as well, uh, and, and then putting it into this digital domain. And it's, I think it, the world is so exciting, but I found it frustrating in the spray and pray approach that some people take to this messaging. And, uh, some t- and, and in some cases, the inflexibility. Uh, many people who are operating in this space are operating in an old domain of like, well, it's a three-month lead time for magazines, so we wait for three months to see whether we get a result or not. And you go, no, 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 no. I want to know by tomorrow whether mm. or not 100 people have looked at it. And, and so that <laughs> being really connected to what the messages that you're sending out and really seeing what is and is not landing is mm. really, really important. It, it is. And I'd say there's lots of stats you need to check, right? So it, it is someone opening an email, for example, is someone seeing your post? But even more than that, what are they are they responding are they leaving a comment because that's like amazing research right there when they respond um are they sharing it um how many people are sharing it who's sharing it what kind of person are they i mean there's so much that you can learn from how a piece of digital marketing lands uh and again you know this does take time and people that are interested enough to try and figure this out um but it's it's worth every minute really of your time to to see how it's landing well, if you're not paying attention to it, it's going to part. You're simply going to get frustrated, and as you wait for results, um, and rather be proactive with it. I was talking to Stephen Bartlett, who's the podcast uh, guy, um, last yeah. year, and I was just saying, you know, and reading up about him, and he is constantly testing which of his content is landing. He's constantly seeing yeah. what people are responding to. He's constantly seeing if he changes his tone, if he changes to the use of words, yeah. and, and I think he's he is pursuing podcasts with the scientific rigor which is terrifying um <laughs> to try and land his messages best with audiences and i think marketers should be doing this he is a marketer at heart but marketers should be doing the same sort of thing i agree i think you've highlighted a little nugget there which i like which is about the phrase paying attention because i think in this overstimulated world and specifically in a digital context you know we don't pay enough attention and i think if you just pay attention and you look at the details as a marketer or a business owner you you can learn so much from them Thank you very much to Belinda Mountain this evening, writer, author, digital marketer. She's written the book on digital marketing. It is a minefield. Please do not expect miracles out of the world of digital marketing. Um, But you do have to apply your brain. You do have to apply your energy and your focus on it um, because otherwise you're going to have your budgets run run away with you and you're going to be left high and dry. It is a very difficult space in which to make an impact. Um, Certified financial planner Warren Ingram is standing. Well, because it's the first show of the year with Warren Ingram, I thought we would start it with a bit of a quiz because Warren has been languishing and resting and having an easy time. And so I thought it would be fun just to provoke him just a little bit. So here's a question for you, Warren. Which is the world's biggest company, most valuable company? Uh, I, I would I would have said apple bruce for for most of the last year or two but but i suspect that it's changed uh so because <laughs> you know i know you're well. tricky <laughs> so, so i'm gonna go it's a tech business but 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 it's not apple and and i know you're tricky so um um uh i, I don't i don't actually know but 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna say not apple not apple is not good enough try again go on give us a name <laughs> Um, Mr. Softy, Microsoft. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Just this evening, Microsoft has bypassed Apple as the world's most valuable company. Uh, and another little gem for you, um, and I picked this up on a company formerly known as Twitter this week. After Bill Gates became friends with Warren Buffett, he began to diversify his portfolio and sold some of his Microsoft shares. Bill Gates's fortune today is worth $138 billion. If he had not diversified, it would be worth $1.3 trillion. <laughs> um, it, it's, it, it's an anomaly because we know that diversification is a good thing and a single stock exposure is very high risk. But yeah, that's the way the world works. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Not that you're losing at $100 billion, but still, um, it's interesting how this diversification has worked against Bill Gates in this particular capacity. I would love to ask him the question uh, as to whether he, he sleeps at night uh, knowing that his eggs are in a few different baskets, because I suspect in, in the times after he re retired as CEO and handed over to Steve Ballmer, he probably was very grateful that he, he had uh, diversified and, and was watching Steve Ballmer drive the company into a wall. It was... <laughs> Absolutely. Satya Nadella has made all the difference. And it does, yeah, goes down, I suppose, to show um, how, you know, the, the, the importance of leadership. Bill Gates built it, but Steve Ballmer didn't do so well. And Satya Nadella, the current chief executive, is r really emerging into a, a remarkable superstar. But yeah, um, yeah, Microsoft, the world's biggest company this evening, it could change by the end of the trading day in uh, the United States, of course, we watch. But um, yeah, no, nothing is ever set in stone. What should we be considering as we start the year, Warren? Let's get on to what we thought we should be talking about rather than me trying to trip you up. So, so I think it's a, it is a great time to 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 just take stock of where where we've been, where we're going, uh, and and for most of that, uh, most of us, that starts with just understanding the, the the not fun side of 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 our finances, which which are our debts. So so just take the time, I think, just to to get in a grip of of your, the total value of of all of your debts. You know, write them down if you can. You know, understand if you've got a home loan, how much is that home loan? Uh, the, the value of the home loan, not just the, the repayments on a monthly basis. What, what is the interest rate that you're being charged? And, and do the same for car finance, uh, you, you know, overdrafts, personal loans, etc. And and don't be afraid to do the exercise. I think it's always better to know the number, you know, even if it seems scary and and depressing. But but I think just take stock of of what what you've got there, uh, and and then most importantly, give yourself a very simple kind of one or two step game plan to to deal with. With some of that debt, you know, and you know, I think for me, I always want to know, you know, what's the one that that's charging me the highest rate of interest, you know. So if it's an overdraft, uh, you know, that was that was kind of incurred uh, after the the long holidays, then you know that 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 might be the thing that you look at first to say, I'm I'm going to, you know, go through dry dry January, you know, uh, uh, take away free January and February, and and take that money that I would normally have spent on those things. And and put it into my overdraft and, until my overdraft is is sorted, uh, and and then you know the, the next plan would be the next most expensive debt. So so just just give yourself a, a simple goal to to look at your debts, write them down, uh, and, and know what they cost you, and and then you know start to address the, the, those debts. I, I think with interest rates as high as they are, Bruce, we, we don't want to be sitting there paying you know eleven and a half percent, you know, w w when you can knock it down. Um, 
and and maybe the other piece of advice is don't be afraid to go to the debt providers and and go negotiate you know go to them and say yeah. gee this this mortgage rate is really high you know can you work a deal with me here to to drop it down i've been a good client for 5 years my my payments are consistent i'm not dropping any balls you know come to the party here or i might have to shop around so so do those kinds of things to see what you can do to sort out your your debts and I, and i think for me probably priority number 1 I think it's a really good priority because I don't care who you are. You spent too much money this last December. Um, you know, really, I know I did. <laughs> I don't know about you. No, you're, you're cheapskates. You probably didn't. Um, but the <laughs> we all tend to, and, and, you know, it's just like that extra bottle of wine or that extra meal out or that extra ticket to a fancy show or whatever it might be. It's just fun and you get caught up in the moment and you don't want to be sort of sitting at the end of your holidays with FOMO. Well, you didn't. And now you're sitting with the problem of a bit of a debt problem. So deal with it and deal with it quickly so that this doesn't hang like an albatross around your neck all year because that albatross eventually starts smelling bad. Um, I suppose also the idea of the, the emergency fund, this is one of your favorite things, which if you got stuck at the beginning of COVID feeling financially vulnerable and you didn't have an emergency fund, my goodness me, if you don't have one by now, you've missed on a, out on a very important life lesson, right? And and I think it's a it's it's purposely the the, the next thing on our list because uh, um, I suspect a lot of people if they didn't uh, you, you know load up their debts in in you know over the holidays what they did was they 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 looked at that emergency fund that they'd been diligently building up and and decided that the emergency was, oh, was some cash. holiday expense. <laughs> yeah. So, so please have a look at your emergency fund. Make sure that uh, you, you know if you did uh, dip into it through through last year. You know more seriously, if you did lose your job or something went wrong, and you and you and you have used some money in the emergency fund, uh, it's it, now, now's the time just to make sure that you that you restock it. And and just as a guide, uh, I think at a minimum three months of your expenses. So if you're spending ten thousand rand a month, then that means you need about thirty thousand rand as a minimum in your emergency fund. Uh, up to about six months uh, of, of your expenses. So three to six months, it's a good target. If you're on one month worth of expenses, well done. You've started the, the process, but but build it up. And it's amazing how emergencies don't happen when you have the emergency fund. But the day you <laughs> deplete that fund, it's amazing how those emergencies stack up. I'm talking to somebody who did do that. They, I mean, they didn't. It wasn't a disaster for them. They took the emergency fund. They said, "This is lazy capital. It's just sitting. Um, it is just sitting in this bank account. It's drawing very little interest. The bit of interest that it earns, I've got to pay tax on as well because it was quite a big lump of money. So they took it and they nailed their mortgage with it. But they kept their mortgage available." to them and they did run into a spot of bother and they didn't need all of their emergency fund but they were then able to dip into the mortgage to help themselves out but they'd kind of separated their lives out and realized that their mortgage was costing them lots of money so and they weren't getting nearly as much on the emergency fund so they then chose to use the mortgage as that emergency fund and you know fortunately for them kept the mortgage open kept it available they were able to access the money they needed in an emergency and you know all's well that ends well um but yes don't treat it like a holiday fund or a fun fund or a a golf club fund or whatever fund you think your fund needs absolutely and and you know if you have a mortgage and you are overpaying into the mortgage that there's nothing wrong with uh, with using that extra money that you've paid into the mortgage as your planned emergency fund i i always think of it as 
kind of a tax-free guaranteed return on an investment because let, let's say you're paying 11.5% a year interest on your on your mortgage. Every extra cent that you've put in there is 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 interest you're not paying. So to me, kind of a form of guaranteed return and you, and you certainly don't pay SARS any money when you're saving yourself uh, interest on a debt. So so by all means, you know, use your, your, your mortgage as your emergency fund. It's a great idea if you've got the discipline. I, I, I love that idea. Okay, good. And then you've also got to think about your investments. And this time last year was going to be an awful year for the world's markets. And in most markets, it was a fairly awful year, except those annoying Americans decided that they should, that inflation was coming down enough for them to start betting on the future. And we saw a huge surge in the value of particularly the S&P 500, which went up by more than 25% last year. And, and suddenly America looks expensive again, and interest rates are not coming down as quickly because inflation isn't falling as fast as we thought it would. And that makes us really having to rethink the way in which we are thinking about our investments. I think there are two big aspects to, to consider around this. The, the, the one is, uh, you know, we've, we've come through a really strange two-year period. We, know we had a horrible 2022 around the world. And, and then um, outside of South Africa, fairly decent 2023. So it's very possible that your your overall portfolio is is really skewed in some strange ways. You, know, you might find your, your bond exposure is a bit smaller than it should be. Your cash exposure is way higher than it, than it normally is. And maybe your share exposure is a bit below the, the norm. So, so the first big thing is just to have a look at your mix of cash, bonds, property, and shares. The, the, the jargon for that is your asset allocation. And just make sure that it's correct, that it's appropriate for where you are in life, your plans, uh, wh where you're going with your with your savings, and, and make sure that it's not out of whack. Because we know for a certainty that, uh, that we can sit down today and do some big themes and big forecasts about 2024 uh, and what we think is going to happen and what's going to drive the markets. And if we can think about it and we can predict it, those are the things that are not going to, to have a massive impact on markets. It's yeah. invariably some unforeseen big surprise. And, and to me, the only protection ag against that really big shocking surprise is making sure you've got the correct asset mix and you know have the, that diversification. I know Bill Gates might think that's a swear word nowadays, but, uh, <laughs> but, but for the rest of us, get, get that diversification correct. Uh, and and just know and be humble enough to say that you, you know so, some people out there will be prognosticating about the world for the the next year or three and and giving you str very strong views about uh, you know buy shares or sell shares or whatever the deal is J just understand that that those big predictions are wrong more than half the time and and so don't don't base your big investment decisions on those predictions rather get the spread of assets and and then watch with interest as the the forecasters get it horribly wrong and the unforeseen either causes great returns or or, or causes big losses but knowing that you've got different eggs in different baskets is really what you need in in a situation like this I was saying to the chief economist at uh, Citadel last night, I was just saying, we simply can't know what we don't know. And when we can't know what we don't know, that is the risk that we can't foresee. Every risk that we do foresee is by and large already priced into the market because some clever person has thought about it already long before we have. So yes, the war in uh, Ukraine and the war in the Middle East are two very, very scary things. Um, but 
you know, the risk of contagion. Well, yes, there is a risk of contagion, but that's kind of also been thought about. Um, the attack of ships in the Red Sea, destabilizing trade. Well, people are thinking about that already. Uh, interest rates not coming down as fast. Well, that's already being thought about quite quickly and quite with quite a level of agility. So we don't really need to know worry about the noise that is happening in the world because that kind of sorts itself out, doesn't it? It does, and and I think you know just understanding that that the market's uh, really volatile over short periods of time. It it can swing, you know, five or ten percent in 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 a period of of weeks or sometimes days, uh, and and there there are huge amounts of money driving markets. Uh, you, you know, where, where where big hedge funds and derivatives traders are are, are trying to make profits over milliseconds or you know maybe minutes to be generous and and if you're an investor trying to make money out of those big swings i, I think you're on a hiding to nothing and so just understanding that you know a lot of this this volatility that we know about today might continue throughout the year even though it's known uh, it doesn't mean that it won't carry on i, I just I'm, I'm laughing at the americans and and their their forecasts on inflation you know because when they get one or two pieces of economic news that are slightly more positive than they thought, then all of a sudden markets oh, boom. And policy. when the economic news yeah. is slightly less positive than they thought, then it's the end of the world. And and we're sitting around, you know, emerging markets in South Africa going, listen, folks, you know, you know, seven or eight percent inflation is nothing. We we have that for breakfast every day. That's not a problem at all. So so I, I think understanding that the the, the developed world doesn't understand actually what's going on that they, they are most of them living with with this big inflation story for the first time in their professional careers uh, and and so they're going to make mistakes and and we we just need to kind of sit patiently and take advantage when they're too depressed and sell us their 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 great assets at low prices and when they get too optimistic don't be afraid to take some profits if your your mix is out of line uh, and for the rest focus on the long term Let's get on to a question. Ricardo has got in nice and early and has been responding to the news flow today. And he sees, he says uh, he's read that the U.S. Exchange, stock exchange regulators have approved ETFs that trade in Bitcoin. I know you and Warren have been telling us to be cautious with cryptos. So I want to know your thoughts now. So I'm passing the buck to you. Well, I'm passing the Bitcoin to you on that one, Warren. You, you can you can keep the Bitcoin. I'll have the back. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I'm 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 worried about this in one sense because I think you know I actually read that statement. You know I, I don't make make it my practice on on holiday to read the statement from regulators. But but if you read that statement from the the the, the, the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the big stock market regulator in the US, that they they are doing this absolutely grudgingly i i think they're almost forced by regulation and now finding strange justifications for why they have to list these exchange traded funds or approve the listing of these exchange traded funds but but the, the they're standing up and saying these are highly speculative still um open to illicit trade or, or at least the, the the kind of the financing of illicit trade etc 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 and it's rare for a regulator to do that about something that they've just approved and and i think there's something like 11 exchange traded funds listed now 
on on the basis of this approval. So so I think mm. uh, you know take the cautionary note from from the regulators to heart. You know if you don't understand Bitcoin and you're not going to be day trading in 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 a really speculative speculative asset, then then let it do its thing and watch people make their make and lose their fortunes. Uh, and and I think sit on the sidelines. The the one benefit for the traders is that uh, you know I think trading and exchange traded funds probably a lot cheaper than trying to actually trade the coins and probably I, I mean I hesitate to say safer but probably protected a bit more from fraud. But uh, that's the thing. But for yeah. the rest, yeah. it's it's really going to be volatile. And and I'm not convinced that that we'll be sitting here in a decade's time saying. That was the best investment anybody's ever made, and you know it's way bigger than Microsoft. I, I just I, I I can't see that happening, but maybe I lack imagination. So, Ricardo, but quite possibly, uh, and and that's that's a reality. I mean, let let's let's be clear about this. There are people in the world who are fundamental believers. I know some very very smart people, some some very astute mathematicians who who, who fundamentally have tried to explain this stuff to me, and I've just gone. Sorry, eyes are glazing over. Um, I've, I've lost interest. By all means, carry on. Um, and I just don't understand something I can't see and I can't touch and I can't see what it does. Um, you know, if, if I'm going to buy a share in famous brands, I know that it sells pizzas and hamburgers and has got a couple of nice restaurants in the portfolio. Spur Corporation, the same. I know I understand a bit better what Standard Bank does than I do what Bitcoin does. I At least I understand what I'm getting myself into. When it comes to a thing that exists in the digital world that doesn't pump water or <laughs> do anything um I, I just find it very hard to relate to and that's me and i may be the biggest loser here well, warren and i will be the biggest losers together here uh, we may be the idiots we really may be but i'm i'm fearful of hype and hype cycles and of fads and of people who invest because hey, they saw it on the internet and there was a Facebook ad and it looked cool. I, I, I can't agree more, Bruce. I think, you know, what bothers me with this whole thing is that it, it feels like it's dragging something into the mainstream and and unless there is more innovation and and more solidity, not I'm not saying to Bitcoin specifically, but maybe to the whole crypto world, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, allocating my money, and I certainly wouldn't be recommending it to others. And and I'm happy to lose out on on some profits. I think they'll be short term profits, not long term. Uh, and you know, I, I think it's it's one of those things where I, I, it's rare that I regret a, a, a share I didn't buy um, when it makes money. Um, I usually regret the share I did buy and it lost money, uh, and I didn't do my homework properly and I didn't understand what I was what, what I was buying. So in this instance, like you, I, I can't pretend to really understand. I, I think this thing is driven by human psychology more so than actually a, a fundamental intrinsic value, and and so. I'll watch on the sidelines, and, and and I know we'll get lots of abuse from people telling us we're dinosaurs after this show, and and that's, that's okay. I'll I'll live with that. Um, here's the thing: uh, loss aversion. It's a part of behavioral finance, and we feel losses far more than we feel the benefits of gains. And so you think you get euphoric when this thing goes up. And you're buying this thing at, what is it, $46,000 today, I think. That is the, the price of a Bitcoin. It's been at these levels before, and it's also collapsed from these levels before. I don't know if this is the beginning of the biggest bull run in, in, in cryptocurrencies in history. I simply don't know. But I do know you're going to be, be very, very sad if six months from now you're sitting and your Bitcoin is worth 30 or 20 or 10 or 5 
And so just be circumspect. That's all I ask. And I think that's all we can ask, Warren, is that uh, there's going to be a lot of hype and a lot of excitement. By all means, put your money wherever you want to put it. But be circumspect as to where you put it, particularly when it is something new, trendy and, and funky. And and you know maybe to the point that that we made earlier, you know don't don't bet the farm on on a big forecast. So if you believe if you, if you're a fundamentalist and you believe that cryptos are the next big thing and they are going to change the world, then uh, you know then allocate some money, but allocate you know allocate money that's not going to destroy your financial position if it goes wrong. If it goes well, you'll you'll regret not having put more in. That's okay. You, you you've made money, but. But I think you know people that that take a make a big call and and let's say draw money out of the home loan, you know take the the, the children's education fund and allocate it to to this big uh, forecasted change of the world thing. That that's happened hundreds of times in the in in you know in the last few decades, and it's rare that people get that right. It's it's usually much more common that they have regret uh, that because they've lost a lot of money. So allocate a little bit, be 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 comfortable that you can lose all of that money, and if it goes well, you know then thumb your nose at me and Bruce. That's okay. We'll we'll live with it. But if it goes badly, I, I, I think you'll you'll feel like you've dodged a bullet. I'll sleep better at night. There we go. Thank you, Warren Ingram, certified financial planner. Ricardo, I hope uh, that gives you the clarity that you were expecting. Uh, Warren Ingram is director of Galileo Capital and.